Hi everyone and welcome to episode 98 of SAMA, a program which invites an expert to talk about their area of expertise. This week we are delighted to have Daniel Waxman with us to talk about natural healing, macrobiotics, uh, the macrobiotic miracles that he's achieved and skin rejuvenation. Denny has been a macrobiotic counsellor since the 1970s and is one of the founders of American Macrobiotics. He has changed the food narrative away from a diet dependent upon animal and dairy foods. From the mid-Atlantic summer camp to opening the first natural store in Philadelphia and directing the Cushy Institute, Denny has been a pioneer in macrobiotics. He gained much public attention when Dr. Anthony Sanzalero overcame terminal prostate cancer and credited Denny for saving his life. In his book, Recalled by Life, he uh, gave him the credit. Denny teaches globally and is the author of The Complete Macrobiotic Diet and soon to be released, The Ultimate Guide to Eating for Longevity. Can't wait for that one to come out, Denny. Denny, welcome to our show. Thank you, John. I'm very happy to be here. Um, now, uh, we're going to talk about the macrobiotic diet. Just what is a macrobiotic diet? Well, macrobiotics, the, the, the diet, macrobiotics is a way of life, but the dietary part um, is based on all of the world's longstanding traditions. So in my studies and research, I discovered there's a pattern in all of the world's longstanding cultures. All of, all of Asia, India, uh, the Middle East, Europe, uh, Africa, they all have the same pattern. And that is they have diets based on grains, beans, and vegetables, seeds, nuts, and fruits. They all had naturally pickled and fermented foods, and they had mild beverages. Together with that, they had mealtimes together and very active lifestyles, outdoors especially. So this is a common pattern that we've seen for the past 10,000 years. And what I find interesting when people say, talk about macrobiotics, they say macrobiotics is a fad diet. And the funny thing is, the reality is, it's probably the only way of eating it's not a fad. It's, it's steeped in history and tradition. So that's really what it is. Isn't it remarkable how a communities on opposite sides of this round earth <laughs> um you know very very distant how they have similar kinds of carbohydrate based diets right I mean, modern history be began with cereal grain cultivation and all people are synonymous with the grains that can't be separated like like rice in asia you know bread bread in europe corn in the americas these are part of our identity the grains that we eat Right. As, how, how did you get first involved? Something must have been a trigger, I guess, to get you, you know, aligned with the study of macrobiotics. Was there well, anything in your life? It's Which funny. Point, sorry. The, the older brother of a friend of mine just blurted out, you know, do you know anything about macrobiotics? I said, no. He said, well, you eat brown rice 10 days and you get high, you change your consciousness. I said, what are you talking? They said, try it, it's macrobiotics. Well, he got my attention. I wasn't ready to jump into my 10 days of brown rice, but I started to look around and discovered a book by Giorgio Sawa, the founder of Modern Day Macrobiotics. Yes. I couldn't put it down. I you know, read it beginning to end, and that was the beginning. The next day I just, I just started, gave it a try. And uh, what I found, I needed help. I didn't do very well. So um, you didn't do very well. Yeah, it, it was it, it was it was a rough start. I couldn't really figure out how how to get started, how to go past the, the just brown rice, until I met someone who you know introduced me to some teachers in Philadelphia, and they they guided me in the beginning. That's fantastic. So, what is the complete macrobiotic diet? Well, it's our version, modernized version of macrobiotics that makes it open and accessible to people and takes away the restrictiveness of it. It's based on adding and not taking away. So anyone interested in better health can start to add healthy practices or foods into their diet and lifestyle. 
So it's, it's a way to make these principles available to much larger numbers of people and to make them more doable and effective. I guess that's a good point because if a diet's not pleasant, <laughs> it's right. more difficult to maintain. But if you're adding to a diet which you've become accustomed and enjoy, it becomes so much easier. Absolutely. I guess you'd have to reduce the amount of your existing diet, otherwise one's weight may may increase with the extra intake. <laughs> well, funny enough, most people practicing macrobiotics eat a fair amount of food and they don't gain weight. You know, people think carbohydrates are fattening, but unrefined carbohydrates are not. Grain-eating people are always thin worldwide. It's just people eating the modern diet. Now, they have weight issues. By modern, you're talking about grains which have been processed, <clears throat> improved to make them more visually appealing. Absolutely. <laughs> but all the traditional grains, rice and barley and millet, all those things, want to, you can eat you know, literally as much as you want without having a weight issue. Just when you start to get into the refined grains, as you mentioned, and the animal and the dairy foods and the sweets, that, that's where the weight issues come to be. Okay, so <clears throat> with, a, excuse me, with a macrobiotic diet, you can improve your physical health? Is that what you're really saying? Greatly. I mean, the interesting thing is, I mean, this has been known in oriental medicine for thousands of years that we have two brains normal brain that we think about but the second brain is in our gut our microbiome yes and interesting point is that our microbiome our second brain our gut brain controls everything it controls how much uh, nourishment we get from our food about our health our, our immunity our moods our attitudes our memory all of these things really come from our gut so um, you know, our approach to macrobiotics is how you eat is just as important as what you eat. So we put a lot of emphasis on eating habits. And people that take the time to make good eating habits and, and eat healthy foods then find even in days, they're starting to improve the microbiome and they start to, you know, improve in every area of their life, the waking life, sleeping life. So, you know, it, it sounds stupid to be true. But it, is, it isn't. It's just a reality. You mentioned moods. Are you suggesting that a microbiotic diet, a good, healthy microbiotic diet, can help your mental state as well? Or your memory, memory and your other cognitive? I, I am. Because you know, when you eat a healthy diet, your energy, your blood sugar, your circulation, everything's much better. So you naturally feel uh, more even-keeled and think, you know, on a more even level. Together with that, healthy food and activity leads to healthier sleep. So when you, you know, you have a good night's sleep, you wake up refreshed, you have even energy, you feel and you think better. So it's quite far-reaching, far the uh, macrobiotic diet then. It doesn't just, that's not just for simple health, but it's for long, it's for your mental state as well if you've had a bad sleep then you're going to wake up grumpy and tired and yeah i mean i didn't have any physical health problems you know when i started but you know i was i grew up in the 60s and i, I was dissatisfied with life and society i was looking for something better and i wasn't happy in any way literally i just didn't like my life i didn't like what i saw outside once I found out about macrobiotics and started to change my diet, everything changed around me. I noticed how I felt and how I saw the world became different. And I started to change. And that, that's what got my attention. I thought, well, what have I changed? I mean, I've added healthy foods into my diet. And, you know, I feel like a different person. So, and I've observed it, you know, with friends and clients over many years. It's consistent. You started in the 1960s. I'm guessing that it would have been easier to choose to find these products which have, been, which have not been um, adulterated. As time has progressed and 
more and more sugars are being added and more and more colors are taken out, bleach is used. It must be harder now, Denny, for people to choose and maintain this diet. Well, yes and no. When I started, there were very few foods available and the organic movement was in its infancy. So it's one of the reasons that I started my store, scene, because, you know, I couldn't find the food, so other people had the same problem. And in the beginning, it was hard to find foods to sell. It was like year by year, everything, I mean, the natural food industry just blossomed and came to life. So the availability now is far greater than ever before. However, we're inundated. Most people don't know what healthy foods are anymore. At least, you know, back in the 60s, I ate 21 meals a week at home growing up. Everybody did. You know, we ate, we ate our breakfast, lunch, and dinner at home every day. So everybody was used to eating at least food. Yes. And that, that all changed in the 70s, especially with fast foods, where we started to lose touch with family meals, with what real food is. So now we have larger availability, but of course the quality is going down steadily. Then we're inundated with the worst foods imaginable. And um, those foods are addictive to people. People have a hard time getting away from all the modern processed foods. to kind of track. Okay. So let me, um, tell me if I have this correct. A probiotic diet is a, is a diet which has carbohydrates which have not been refined. They're in the natural raw state or the natural state, I should say. Um, but I'm but I'm missing something. There must be more to it than this. It's a probiotic diet. I'm not quite sure what you. Sorry, the um, sorry, the um, I'm talking about the macrobiotic diet. Right. Um, we're talking about unrefined carbohydrates because yes. you've right. explained how carbohydrates are a staple for. Um, people all over the globe. Um, what else is the macrobiotic diet? What else uh, oh, okay. makes up the macrobiotic right. diet? So, the basis of a complete and balanced meal nutritionally is a cooked grain and a separate vegetable dish. It's the right. interaction between the two. So, the two components yes. of every meal that we eat, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, is a cooked grain and a separate vegetable dish. The next food that follows that is soup. The next food that follows that is beans, or is major beans and soy products. Yes. So there's a common pattern, grains and beans, vegetables, soups, and then everything else follows that. Ah, it's not grains alone. Yes, and, I understand. Oh, and it's important to get that in that sequence. Right. So uh, one of the things we explain clearly in our book that there's an order to choosing a meal. And that is you decide on your grain, then you decide on your vegetable dishes. Yes. And one of the things that we discovered is people can't eat high grain diets anymore. Maybe in Asia, because it's part of, of the culture, you know, more recently in a stronger way, but in other places. So we recommend people eat a lot less grains and a lot more vegetables than in the past. And that seems to work very well for people. Plus, we recommend a lot more beans and also tofu uh, than people are used to eating in past macrobiotic lifestyles. Why do you think some communities can't consume much grains? The, the, the main reason is our digestion. Everyone's digestion is getting weaker. Because, you know, it used to be that the lifestyle, like when I grew up, you know, I used to think, well, kids played outside from morning to night. But then I realized it wasn't only kids. Everybody was outside a lot. You know, where I lived, everybody, you know, parents, the adults, they hung out outside as well. They weren't inside. And we just did a lot of things outside. So you had a natural, active lifestyle. And you didn't have all the modern conveniences. Now, almost everyone, you know, unless you're a farmer or a landscaper or something, you're inside most of your life sitting down. And, you know, that's taken a toll on, on our health and our nervous systems, our digestive system. And as a consequence, 
people don't have the same ability to digest grains as they did in the past. So, you know, I started off eating probably 60% grains for many years in macrobiotics. But, you know, I'm guilty like everyone else. I'm sitting in front of my computer a good part of the day and yes. not out like, like I should. And I started to notice I do better with less grains. And I did the same for my clients. And I said, you know, okay, this is definitely a trend. Okay. Less grains vegetables. So it's not a genetical change. If you, if you started spending more time outside and your What's body would become would revert back to normality. Right. <laughs> but being, spending spending more time inside may not be a, necessarily a bad thing with the pollution that's outside. Mind you, then again, I guess the pollution goes inside as well, so you can't get away from it. Yeah. And the and the air, airborne pollution. And like standing water putrefies, standing air does as well. So a huge amount of pollution goes up inside. It's uh, it's not a good situation. No, it's not a good situation. Um, and of course, it's all around us, isn't it? You can't get away. Unless you're living in some countries which are blessed with blue skies and uh, clean, clean environment. But those are few and far between. And some countries, are, they do everything right, but they get the blowover from neighboring countries. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and uh, balanced meals. If we are having all the time grains and then beans and then other vegetables in a certain order, isn't it going to uh, limit the range of foods that we have and therefore not get some of possibly the micronutrients which are only available in some foods? I mean, I think it's really the opposite. I mean, there's an endless number of combinations of grains, beans, vegetables, seeds, nuts, and fruits, right? Beverages, pickled and fermented foods. So the variety is really unlimited. Plus, you're not limited to one cuisine. You, you can have Asian cuisine and then Middle Eastern cuisine and Northern African. And, you know, you can, you can change it day by day. Yeah. But we eat one so-called typical or traditional macrobiotic meal a day. Um, with like rice or millet or one of the standard grains we used to eat. Then we eat another, which is more like a Mediterranean or Mexican, something, you know, some different type. And it works well because it really expands the variety and keeps everything interesting and light. Okay, okay. But most of those are just flavor differences, surely, rather than nutrient dif differences. If you're using the same base. Well, if um, there's the general warning where uh, vegetarians may be deficient in B12, for example. Right. And would, sorry. sorry. Some do, some do, well, I mean, a lot of meat eaters are B12 deficient also. So, you know, my long time experience is some people, most people never have a B12 issue. Some do. So I recommend people periodically do a blood test and check your B12. And if you're 400 or below, then take a supplement. So my experience is everything under the sun that we need, we get optimally from a plant-based diet, except for possibly B12. And it's hard to overdose. So if you find a high quality supplement, take it regularly, you can't go wrong. Okay. Okay, well, that's simple. <laughs> do, do you know the main source of B12 worldwide in the past? It was, it was actually dirt. Really? It's produced from decaying matter in the soil. And when people had small farms, they had the, you know, the cows and the pigs and the chickens. Then they used the manure and they grew their own vegetables. It's a micronutrient. So in the crevices of the you know, the carrots and the scallions and everything. People were getting B12. Then if they ate some animal foods on top of that, then they topped it up. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Yeah. Now we have sterilized vegetables grown in, you know, monoculture. And of course. Yeah.
they say that playing in dirt is healthy, extremely healthy, but now they have the soft rubber to play on, so it's safer. So <laughs> we are very heavily protected nowadays. It's impossible to bruise yourself on playing grounds. There's, there's a great book, it was one of my early influences, it was called Farmers of 40 Centuries. It was how in 4,000 years in China of farming small plots of land, they improved the soil quality year by year and never had any soil erosion using just traditional methods. Yes. And it was just one of those books that I read early on and it just had such a, a profound effect on me. That, you know, the relationship people had to the land and the soil in the past where rather than causing massive soil erosion and deterioration, they were actually nurturing the land year by year. Uh, because I, I live in, in China and I, I go very often to villages, I've seen this. They section off the land, and each section is like a, a micro-environment, and they maintain the water and that, and that plot, because it doesn't seem to rain very much, especially in the area where, where I am now. And the land is extreme. No matter how far you dig, the, the soil is that lo beautiful loam that... that, that you want to just pick it up and go like this, <laughs> and I do. It's it's a beautiful soil, and I wondered how it could be like this if they've been there for such a long time. But what you're saying is right. They they put back into the soil. They 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 rotate. They change different types of crops, and they don't do intensive um, agriculture either. Yeah. So they've got fantastic soil. I couldn't help but notice during our talk how wonderfully smooth your skin and radiant your skin looks is this part of the benefits of the macrobiotic diet well one of the things we recommend is something we call the body rub now in the past people have recommended vigorous scrubs or dry brushing yes but i realized at one point if you use a hot damp cloth and a gentle pressure you actually cause your pores to open yes. rather than close. And then you draw out more fats and toxins from the past. So the skin renews itself every 28 days. Every 28 days we have new skin. However, it gets nourishment, moisture, oils, and nourishment from inside. Yes. So if you eat healthy foods and you do a gentle rub with hot damp cloth, and take 10, 15 minutes, still with, with some care, then no matter what your age is, you have nice skin. It's, it's just, it's an amazing practice. But it's so simple, there must be some trick. No, there, there's, there, there's not a, the trick is you use your sink or a basin. You take a cotton washcloth, you fold it in half twice, so it's a square pad, it's four layers. Okay. You dip it in and you re-dip it into the same water. You don't run it under the tap or in the shower. You need to do it at the sink in a dedicated basin or in your sink. And then you re-dip the cloth into the same water and it makes it more effective. And if you do it that way and rub gently, like the tide, just gently rolling in or gently rolling out, wherever you're going, just up and down very gently and with great care, like when I do it, I do my wrist, I do my palms, I literally do it in between every finger, do each finger itself. I mean, that's the kind of care. Same thing on the back, each finger, and my arms, you know. So, and um, we actually, we have a, a DVD, it's, actually, it's going to be available online soon, of uh, how, you know, how the details of how to do it to get the most benefit. But my long-time observation is, People who do the body rub have better health than others because basically in order to be healthy, what goes in is important. There's no doubt our diet or eating habits, but just as important is our body's ability to eliminate, to detoxify. Our skin's our body's largest organ. If it gets clogged, then we lose a huge ability. It's, doing, it's the third kidney. It's doing the same as our kidneys to, to clean our body. So if your skin's clogged, you can't eliminate, detoxify normally. Once you open your skin, everything's different. Your body cleans itself naturally. Would you go as far as to say the skin is a, can be a good indication of your overall health, the condition of your skin? 
Absolutely. In, in Oriental medicine, the periphery, the surface, shows the center of deep inside. And the more peripheral, the more deep. So the skin is our most peripheral surface organ, which means the skin really shows the condition of, of our blood, of our internal organs, of our nervous system, the deepest parts of our body. And, you know, again, in my counseling practice, I've noticed it's very common before someone finds out they have a serious illness, their skin quality and condition changes. First, it becomes more dull, then it becomes doughy. It starts to you get like raw dough where it loses, you know, the vitality and resilience that the healthy skin has. Right. And, you know, you can notice that a lot. Mm-hmm. I've noticed that actually um, people that have got very serious diseases, their skin certainly changes. Yeah. A lot. And the color right. that's all turn, turn pasty. Right. And conversely, people start, they eat better, they do the body rub, and in in you know, days or weeks or months at the most, and they realize, God, my skin is really different. Which means what's going on is inside is different as well. But this this body rub is so simple. It's just is it just water? Just water? Plain hot water out of the tap. Now, hopefully you have filtered water. You know, rather than polluted water. But even when I travel, I mean in a hotel, I often bring my own cloth. So I prefer that to who knows, you know, what the cloth is like. So it's certainly not filtered water in a hotel. No. But I still do the body rub and still think it's beneficial. Good, good. Why is it important to use the same basin? Why can't you use running hot water? Well, I mean, that that's a good question. Again, one of the things that I observed along the way is that you can't, pick up liquid, absorb liquid with a dry sponge. I call it the damp sponge. It's the principle behind my healing. That if you have a damp sponge, you can absorb plenty of water. So if you constantly run the cloth under the tap, very clean water in your so-called dirty skin, it doesn't have a communication. But once so, let's say I do my hand, and I dip the cloth in, and oils and dead skin my hand go into the water so the water becomes like a damp sponge and as you do it you can't believe what the water looks like when you're done how much you think you you know take a bath or shower and scrub i think you're clean it's because you're playing in the dirt (laughs) i wish i was but uh but what comes out of your skin is amazing and once you you know, whatever it is from your own skin, oils and whatever toxins go in, it attracts more out from from your skin. And, you know, I don't know if my explanation or observation is right, but what I can tell you is people who do the body rub in the way that I recommend, they have nicer skin than other people. So... You are a pharmaceutical company's nightmare because you are... Right. Suggesting there's a way of cleaning faces which doesn't need cleaning lotions. It doesn't need a product that's got a patent, it's alcohol based and smells nice. Absolutely. <laughs> wow, it's something so simple. I noticed um, whilst I was a teenager and going through teenage skin that if I just splashed water on my face, if I just splash water for about five minutes, because I had noticed when I went to um, went for a swim, a long swim, my skin condition would improve. Um, I guess that, that in that point in time, it might have been the water just drawing off the oils, which were in the subcutaneous portions of the skin. But now you're suggesting, if I was going through the same time period, which wasn't that long ago, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it was, but you won't go there. You, you just, if I was to dab a, um, a pad, a, um, a square pad on my face, it just rubbed it like this. That would have been good for acne. Yeah. Wow. Some, something so simple. So you've, you've, we've done the scrub. After the scrub, how do we replenish and nourish our skin 
and uh, lessen the, uh, the need for having moisturizers or dare I say that word cosmetics. Is there any, any what, how, how would you recommend we, we provide the nutrients to our skin after our rub? Well, there are certain foods that nourish the skin more than others. So the number one is whole grains. Any grain in its whole form, brown rice, barley, millet, you know, farro, any grain in, in its whole form. It's where the, where the bran is not grounded to a fine flour. Yes. makes the skin flexible, resilient. Then the second food is beans. Beans make the skin smooth. Then sea vegetables, not many people eat them outside of Asian macrobiotic people. Actually, all island countries and coastal people traditionally eat seaweeds, but now they're kind of forgotten. But seaweeds make the skin strong. Yes. And then one other food, and it's again common to Asia, natural soy sauce in soup makes the skin tight. So that, that combination, plus rather than using animal fats, using vegetable oils sparingly. So that combination uh, provides the most nourishment, the best nourishment for the skin. And, you know, so you're, you're saying that the um, cosmetic companies are looking at things the wrong way. They're doing, looking at the problem from the outside rather than, than from within. It, exactly. They're basically covering up, trying to moisturize things. But you know what happens? So if this is your skin, the fat layer builds up. Yes. Then you put a moisturizer on. Where does it go? It goes into the fat layer. Now, if you use it sparingly and it's good quality, that's fine. Well enough. But if you're using it every day, you're compounding the problem, then you need that product more and more. So the more you use it, the more you need it. The other side is if you take care of your health and your skin, it gets naturally moist. Now, if you're out in the elements enough, your skin's going to get dry and you're going to need something. But normally we need you know, very little for, for our skin. It's just naturally moist and, you know, and, and resilient. Right. And the, the other part of the problem is, you know, when the skin gets clogged, it interferes with everything. We have capillaries that affect our overall circulation. We have lymphocytes, lymph cells that are part of our immune system. Uh, we have nerve cells that regulate our sensitivity, you know, body temperature. And even acupuncture meridians are run under the skin. So everything that's affecting our body is really just under the surface, under the skin. So it's worth a try. Anyone can give it a try and see. Well, it's something so simple too, you know, just changing a diet or adding to an existing diet. I guess it'll be wise for some people to drop some of their old habits, in particular if they're, if they're not so healthy. Um, a hard thing to get now is quality oils. Yes. You know, very hard. Even vegetable oils, they're almost always um, had antioxidants added. They've been processed with extreme heats to keep them beautiful and shiny in the clear bottles. It's very, very hard. And I know in China it's just not impossible to get a quality oil. You've got to import it from a place like Spain or Italy. Right. Very, very hard. Yeah, Europe still has some very high quality oil. Spain, Portugal, France, Italy, those countries really, really do have good oils. Well, the oils there have got great nutritional value because they've been cold pressed. They, they are the, they are the plant still as the, as the plant was. It has, nothing's been removed, and so they're dark colours. Olive oils are dark green. Looks terrible. Tastes fantastic. <laughs> Well, what's, what's terrible? Something that's not clear or white, isn't it? It's, it's right. funny how cultural changes have taken place over the years. We've become... Everything is now bleached, isn't it? And then when it's bleached, it's got residual, residual chemicals as well as all the nutrient, all the good stuff taken out. You know, uh, Didi, when we were in Italy the first time... Um, 
we notice people are pouring on oil over their food. And of course, in Western society, we're brought up with oil is bad for you, you know, less oil. But oil is a nutrient, the right type of oil. And so they, they, they pour it on and it becomes very, very nice. And I noticed also that their skins were very healthy. Would this have been because the, 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 uh, the nutrients are being supplied from the inside? Probably. But the question is, you know, is their health coming from the oil or is it coming because they're eating, you know, a high plant-based diet? I mean, lots of vegetables and fruits traditionally because some people question how healthful oil actually is and sesame and olive oil have a 6,000 year history and they're the only two oils that can be completely naturally pressed without any added heat or solvents. So, you know, my thinking is, and they've been used in all the cultures that have great longevity and health, so used properly, but you know, I'm always trying to research traditional foods. Yes. And, you know, and what I, I discovered is that in India, which now the food is very, very spicy, that that's very recent. That's really, you know, because of the, you know, the, the spice trade. So in India, it's basically pepper, black pepper, white pepper, and mustard. They're the only natural spices. Everything else came from the Caribbean. Well, I'm doing a research project on traditional diets, and I have a friend who's Korean and grew up in Japan. And uh, we asked her to do a little research on the traditional Korean diet. And actually, we just talked today, and she said, originally, the food was not spicy in Korea. Korean food now, I mean, some of it, I can't eat. It's like, whoa, over the top. And she said, that's really very recent, originally. And even the original kimchi was not spicy. So my point is a roundabout way of saying, I question the use of oil in the past. So if cultures like, you know, Mexico, India, uh, Korea, now they've used lots of spices in the past, really didn't. They, you know, they were very moderately or sparingly used. My supposition is it's the same with oil. And then over the years, it got, you know, over the top. They became used excessively. Why is why was there the trend of the overuse of oils? Do you think they taste good? <laughs> They're satisfying. Food with oil is tasty. Um, uh, you know, and then people say, "Oh, it's healthy." So, oh, a little bit is good. We'll, we'll just use some more. <laughs> it's interesting how sesame oil you're saying goes back 6,000 years, at least 6,000 years. Right. Of, of all the oils which we use in cooking now, sesame oil has to be, in my opinion, the, the best tasting oil. We make bread using sesame oil and it gives it a beautiful, nutty sort of taste. Yeah. It's also, yeah. it's good to know it's healthy. And the one that we're using now is one that has been cold presses. It's, got an amazing, amazing flavor. But how would they have extracted the oil such a long time ago? With, with an auger press, just a screw press. That's all you need for, uh, for both olive and for sesame oil. Massive amounts of oil. That may be a reason why it's used more, more prevalent now. And it's actually easier to cook, isn't it, with more oil? It's harder to burn things, get things sticking to the pot. So I guess it's that, that bonus as well. Yeah, it's easier to get more taste out of the food when you use oil. I mean, cooking without oil requires a little more skill to really bring the flavor of the food out. That is true. Very true.
very interesting what you're saying about Indian cooking, how it did not used to be spicy. I, I always associated Indian food with tamarack, basically, tamarack and the masala, but tamarack. So where did tamarack come from? I'm not sure. That might be indigenous. Okay. Asia. That I'm not sure. But that's, you know, it's similar to ginger. It's one of those spices that's more natural and more widely used. Um, you know, garlic has a wide distribution, north, north and south, as does the ginger, turmeric. So there's certain ones that I, I think are more, more traditional. And um, kind of passed the test of time. Yes. Now, we've mentioned how countries on opposite sides of the earth have a similar type of diet, the, the, the main basis of the diet, especially historically. But mm. how would you explain the trend where countries which are hot tend now to have hot, spicy foods, whereas colder countries... The opposite. You think it's the wrong way around. You think if you're in a cold country, you should get you should consume hot, spicy food. Well, okay, that's another. It's it's interesting. So the hot. There's two types of spices. One type where you feel deep in your sinus, like onions, garlic, horseradish, things like that. So when you eat them, you know where they're hot. They make you cry and they they cause a pain right there. <laughs> and they have a gathering effect. Other spices like chili, you can't tell where it's hot. It's hot. Everybody experiences the hotness in a different way. So the really hot spices are dispersing. So in hot climates, we actually have a need for some hot spice to help disperse excess heat. Whereas in cold climates, we need the gathering spices, the horseradish or the ginger wasabi, onions to help preserve our heat and energy. So there's an interesting distribution of certain things, you know, north and south. Like the further north you go, the more dense bread gets. The further south you go, you get more to chapati, pita, th things like that, lighter, lighter breads. Yes, yes. The patterns are fascinating. We're just, um, breads. The history of bread. Now, we, we had a bit of a conversation yesterday, not you, but um, a group of people we had a talk about breads and how, now, um, to make bread in the past, you would have ground up the grains. This would have been probably one of the major um, reasons for, for harvesting, for the, um, harvesting the grains. The um, sugars. To make yeast rise, you need some form of nutrients. Would they have just used the carbohydrates within the grain instead of adding sugars as we do now? Yeah, traditional sourdough is flour and water. They mix them and they drew yeast right, microbes out of the air, depending on the environment there. Then it'll pop up and then they stir them and they keep doing that till they get just the right amount of sour. Then they used at that time stone ground flour, which is the highest quality. Of course, it was organic. So with this organic stone ground flour and natural ferment, just drawing yeast out of the air, right, then that made the, the bread rise. Whereas for commercial yeast, baker's synthetic yeast, you need sugar to make it to make it work. Right. Oh, okay. That's very interesting. I guess mm -hmm. with the older way, it would have taken a long time for the bread to rise because it's only using... Overnight. Really? Yeah. Well, I'm not a baker, but, you know, the first year we had our store, we had a lunch counter, and I was the baker. So every day I'd make five loaves of unyeasted sourdough bread. Yes. And by the end of the year, I actually got quite good at it. And then, <laughs> when... When you got the right sourdough and you needed just the right amount, not too little, not too much, then you found the right place to leave it, to rise. Then overnight, it just rises beautifully. And the next morning, you know, five o'clock in the morning, I used to put the bread in the oven and 
So just make it for one day. And some bread might be using for, I don't know, longer than that. I don't, I mean, I'm not really a baker, but I know it will rise overnight sufficiently. And that's using the yeasts that are floating in the air. Just flour and water. So if you're making a rye bread, you use, you know, rye flour for your ferment. And if you're making a wheat bread or whatever, whatever it is, you use that, that type of flour to, to make the sourdough starter. What about now when there's pollution in the air? Are the, is the yeast still vibrant? Can it still be? So. Near us, outside of Philadelphia, an hour away, there's, there's a bakery. And um, they have the best bread I, I've ever had. I mean, they use local stone ground flour. They make their own ferment for each bread. And it's just, it, it's amazing. And it keeps fresh for the longest time. It does, doesn't mold, doesn't dry out. It's really, you can see, you know, why people call it, you know, the staple of life. It was, it was really important. It doesn't go moldy because it hasn't got so many sugars in the bread? Right, I think because it has, you know, enough nutrients and enough vitality. Yes. Wow. Yeah. It's interesting. And they don't add salt to the bread because salt... Salt. So it's flour, water, and salt. And natural ferment. That's it. <laughs> wow, there's something so simple. We've talked about the very basics in the summer, haven't we? We were talking about... Uh, nutrition from within, with the macrobiotics. Right. Talked about their skin health and how it's important to approach it not from the outside. So um, we're not talking about creams or, or cosmetics, skin paints, <laughs> but again from the inside so your body can... Well, that's where skin grows, from the inside out, not from the outside in. So it does seem a little bit ludicrous to just put things over the top and expect your skin to still exfoliate naturally and breathe naturally when it's got a layer of oils and emulsified who knows what right. on the top. We've also talked about the order of eating foods, of having the, um, let's see if I can get this right. <laughs> I know I'll get it wrong. Um, you have the, um, the, the rices, the, the grains, the beans, the vegetables. Was I half right there, Denny? That's, that's very good, yes. <laughs> Just need to get some soup in there with one of your meals. And you've explained how you don't have to completely go to this type of diet, but you can retain the parts of your existing diet which you enjoy, and you can, sub, you can add to that. Um, yeah. And you've also explained how eating this way um, you don't get fat. Now, why don't you get fat? Because you're having, you're still having a certain calorific intake. Is it because it's not so available to the body, those calories? Well, I don't think the calorie theory works very well, personally, but yes. it's been debunked recently. Healthy <laughs> foods increase or make our body more efficient at detoxifying and eliminating what it doesn't need. Yes. So as long as what goes out is equal to or more than what goes in, you don't gain weight. Okay. Which means if you eat a comfortable amount of healthy foods and walk and do the body rub on a regular basis, then your weight regulates itself. You know, most of my clients don't come to me for weight issues. They come for everything else under the sun. Most of them are overweight. And I hear the same thing all the time. I'm losing weight. I wasn't trying. It just happens naturally. Why? Not because when your body's healthy, it goes to its natural weight. It really shouldn't be an issue. Okay. And I guess if you're having the type of diet you're describing, the food will be passing through reasonably quickly. It wouldn't be spending more time in your body. Yeah. yeah. Another point, it's like the, the, the value of adding is that then you're changing the percentage. Let's say you have, you know, a 90% unhealthy diet and 10% healthy. And you add 10% more healthy foods, so you're going to 80-20. Now 
and 10% more, you're going to 70, 30. So, yes. so you keep, once you get enough healthy in relationship to the unhealthy, you start to tip the scales. Okay. The other thing, you start to have more enjoyment from what you're doing. You get to the point where you have enough healthy where it takes care of the other things. So my observation is it's not about perfection. It's about creating health-supporting habits and cultivating a taste for natural healthy foods. Once that's underway, well, the rest is just a matter of time. It takes care of itself. You're making it sound very simple, but to wean oneself off sugar is one of the hardest things possible. It's like nicotine and addiction levels. Well, yes and no, because... You know, before macrobiotics, I was a 100% junk food eater. I had the worst diet you can imagine. Nobody would have guessed that I would have gone this, this route. But what I discovered, and I was a sugar and chocolate I mean, to, to the highest degree. What I discovered, I mean, I, I mean tasty cakes, you know. Uh, I mean, that, that, was, that was one of my staples, you know, these cheap, junky cakes. But at any rate, um, <laughs> What I had discovered was, as I started healthy foods, I automatically lost my taste for the others. It wasn't discipline. It was enjoying and finding, for me it was adventure, each new food, each dish, everything. I just, you know, I was excited. Everything was so new. So as I added the healthy, I started to lose my taste for unhealthy foods. And I can't say I never eat unhealthy foods. I mean, I do. Everybody does. But... I don't, I don't really crave them, like, you know, in social circumstances or whatever, you know, if it's there, I might enjoy a little bit. But what satisfies me, what I look for is not sugar. It's a natural sweetness and, you know, in sweet vegetables and sweet potatoes and, you know, cooked grains and things of that nature. Foods. That's interesting. So you don't, you don't need willpower. It's just really naturally gravitating towards foods, <clears throat> pardon me, which, um, which have got a better taste. Right, and that's such an important point because if people think about health and diet, they think about restriction and giving things up. Yes. And that doesn't that, That's really the biggest stumbling block of shifting your mind so you realize it's about adding healthy things, looking for things that are healthy and enjoyable and satisfying. And then health craves health. One healthy food likes another healthy food. And it starts to get a life of its own. If you're working a busy lifestyle, how does one find the time to make the foods that one should eat? Because fast foods, the appeal, that came alongside um, the working hours becoming increased and working days, um, you know, Saturday, Sunday. People don't get so much free time now as they had before. Well... I mean, at one point, we probably cooked everything from scratch at home, and we don't anymore. We, we rely on pre-prepared foods. We rely on organic canned beans, things like that, and make use of leftovers. Plus, eating out, I mean, living um, Philadelphia is a very vegan-friendly city. It's very easy to eat out and go to restaurants and get grain, bean, vegetable quality meals, healthy soups, all those things, more and more all the time. So you can find the right mix of doing things at home, getting pre-prepared things, and finding restaurants that, you know, will uh, provide healthy choices. Um, Philadelphia sounds like a good place to be. The, um, in some ways. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard. Uh, we've... Uh, I find in many countries it's hard to find um, places which are vegetarian, let alone vegan. Um, places yeah. that um, that cater for for people with those diets. Very hard, actually. Even a yard for a salad and it's got sprinkling of meat on the top <laughs> or something terrible like this. Are you are you a vegan? I'm not vegan. I do eat some fish. Okay. Um. I mean, I never really liked meat, so stopping meat was certainly wasn't a challenge for me. No. Well, I liked hamburgers and hot dogs, but real meat, I never liked. So it was, you know. How, how far away are people's 
concep conceptions of what the prehistoric diet was to what it truly was. The visualization they have is hunting and gathering so that they'd pick things off the ground that were exist that were already there, or they go out with spears and catch their prey. Is that pretty close to how it was, or is it very different? Way off the mark. I mean, there's enough research to show that they're eating wild grasses, they're eating acorns, they're eating berries, and you know, tubers, and lot, lots of plant-based foods, together with animal foods as well. But it wasn't just you know eating this high-protein you know, animal diet. There, it was largely plant-based. Okay, and this opportunist, I suppose, if they if they manage to catch something, then then it's meat for for a while. <laughs> right. You know, people think that we ate a lot of meat in the past, but according to my research, before the industrial revolution, in Europe, the average is five to ten kilograms per person per year. Most wow. of which was for holidays and festivals in the form of roast or stew. So like a village would roast an animal and make a huge stew for a holiday or festival. Now, China, Japan, and India all were two kilograms per person per year before the Industrial Revolution. That's almost nothing. So... You know, when people say, oh, we've always ate this much animal food, it's really, it's really not true. It's, it's a very recent phenomenon. I noticed now, Denny, how this, how much meat people are eating. And I wonder if people who are watching this, you know, think of what they're having after, the, after they've watched this, um, this uh, video, that uh, they're going to have a, a meal and it's going to have meat. A meal is not a meal without meat. It's, right. it's, it's quite remarkable. And so if we used to have predominantly vegetables in the past, we would have got our nutrient needs from that diet. And so Absolutely. what's changed? It's only perception, only our habits, where people have got the mindset that they need meat for a, for a balanced diet. Isn't that remarkable? Yeah, I mean, all food has protein, so protein's not an issue. Yes. I mean, minerals come from the earth. So basically, everything we need grows, is, is absorbed by grains, beans, and vegetables, etc. Then when we eat it, we're getting direct nourishment from the earth. If we eat animal food, the animals are eating the plants instead of us, processing them with the waste that they have. Yes. Then we're secondhand protein and nutrients. Okay. If you drink the dairy food, it's actually third-hand, because then the animals eat the plant, then making the dairy. Yes. So, you know, my perception is everything's upside down and backwards and inside out. You know, you're saying you need animal foods. It's really, really not true. I mean, what is true is we need plants that are grown naturally from the earth, and we need a variety. And if you want to choose to eat some animal and dairy foods, that, that's your choice. Isn't it funny? The conversation always goes back to dirt. <laughs> Have you yeah. noticed that? <laughs> yeah, we do walk the dirt to soil. It's where, it's where it all starts. It's, where, it's the mother vein from the dirt. Right. Well, I've really enjoyed this talk, Denny. It's been, it's been um, very revealing. You know, we've we, in in modern society with all the progress we've made, it would appear that most of the progress has been in the wrong direction. It's been in reverse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the technology is wonderful, but a lot of the things are really not. I agree, in the wrong direction. So just you know, it'll, even the thing about children playing, we used to go out and play, and you're playing on dirt, bare feet, and of course you get you get dirt everywhere. <laughs> and I'm sure we consume some as well. It just doesn't happen now. It's sad, isn't it? It it, it really is, and, and kids are protected. They're kept from it, not realizing that our immunity or immune systems get strong and vital <laughs> from that. From that dirt, good old dirt. Well, thank you so much, Diddy, for being on the show and taking time out too because it is like your side of town. 
Thank you. Really appreciate it. Enjoy. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye.